TED Audio Collective. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Summarize with AI in a click. Click, 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 click. Writer's block. Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. Hi, this is Mihir Desai, and you're listening to HBS After Hours. I'm delighted tonight to be talking to my colleague, Rafaela Sadun, who has done spectacular work, and we're going to be talking a little bit about her work on the value of management. So welcome, Rafael. Thank you. It's a pleasure being here. Just as a means of introduction, you know, you've created this enormous body of work with Nick Bloom and John Van Rienen and others, and a lot of it is summarized in this fantastic HBR piece that you guys did last year, which I think just won the HBR McKinsey Award for yes, best article uh, in the HBR. And it's called Why Do We Undervalue Competent Management? And it really kind of is a business school dean's dream come true, you know, <laughs> <laughs> you know which is what we do and what everything that we teach matters. Um, but you kind of frame it in an interesting way, which is you think we've come to devalue management. And this whole body of work suggests that we're wrong about that. So tell us a little bit about why you think we came to devalue it and what we get wrong in that process. So I think the title and the spirit of the article are actually very much inspired by my experiences teaching here. Uh-huh. Uh, so when I got here, this was already eight years ago, um, I started teaching the basic RC strategy course, which is the first year course uh, that every MBA student goes right. through. They cannot choose. Right, right. <laughs> right? <laughs> And one of the key principles of uh, what we teach is that um, what it's called operational effectiveness, which is really the execution piece right. of you know, the processes, the routines, are certainly very important for success, but they are easy to imitate. Right. And therefore, uh, their imitability means that they cannot be a source of sustainable competitive advantage. And therefore, strategy matters. And therefore, you know, you should, as an executive, put more emphasis on your work as a strategic decision maker, which means understanding the business in which you want to play and how you position yourself within that business. So that perspective, to me, um, really, you know, sort of shut down all the potential complications that come once an executive has to execute. Right. uh, I've often heard of this referred to as it's table stakes. Operational effectiveness is almost a given then we talk about the interesting stuff. And, you, and exactly you're suggesting right. that that's quite incomplete. Well, you know, when I came here, I had just started looking at the data 
which showed that there was tremendous variation in adoption of basic management practices. Right. And that variation was substantial, not just uh, across countries, as you might expect. To some extent, management is an investment that you make. You know, it's easier perhaps to find managerial resources in developed countries relative right. to developing countries. But the surprising thing is that there was tremendous variation within countries as right. well. One, and when you say tremendous variation, Rafaela, you had to first actually define what management was. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right? I mean, that's like the first step, right? So how did you go about that or how did you think about that? This was something, this is a project that is called the World Management Survey, which, you know, is the, the data that is at the, at the, you know, the foundation for this HBRP that you described. It's a project that started in uh, 2004. Very much inspired from the private sector, mm -hmm. uh, we started uh, working with a consultancy, McKinsey. They believed that they had understood basic processes mm -hmm. that they thought, based on their experiences, was systematically associated with uh, firm-level growth and firm-level right. success. They had not validated these ideas, however, in large samples. Right. And I was part of a group of economists that uh, decided to say, okay, you know what, if you really believe that that's true, let's see. Right. right. Let's measure it at scale. Right. So the definition of what good looks like came from the private sector, came uh -huh. from, a, from a survey grid that was already defined, 18 processes that they thought were important. And I was part of a group of academics that said, OK, let's scale that measurement up. And to this date, we have 15,000 organizations in, in uh, uh, 34 countries that have been measured using this survey tool. That's amazing. And it's not just measured, right? I mean, there's actually been interviews, qualitative oh, interviews, yeah. right? So it's not just kind of some ticking the box, right? No, absolutely not. I mean, there is a whole world behind the measurement, <laughs> which actually I think I loved it. I still love it because it's, you know, you think about academics as being holed up in their office. Here it was, I was actually managing teams myself. Right. We were in a community. We were all based at the London School of Economics at that point. This was during my PhD years. We took a conference room of the of the school where typically you would have discussions of equations and you know right, all sort right. of stuff. We converted that room in a call center. <laughs> right. <laughs> Very good. And it was, you know, for two months we we worked with uh, MBA. Typically it was MBA students in between uh, mm -hmm. classes. It would happen this would happen in the summer. And we would choose them, we would uh, motivate them, we would incentivize them, but we would work together and train them to run interviews that were fundamentally open-ended, yeah. talking with plant managers of manufacturing companies that were randomly selected. That was something that we really wanted to sure. get. You know, here at HBS, for example, you always hear about the winners, right. the big companies. Right, right, right. But the economy is made of, you know, a whole variety Absolutely. of businesses. Yeah. So we decided to do, you know, representative sample of sure. companies. And so for the summer, they would call, call these companies, uh, convince the plant managers to be interviewed for about 45 minutes to an hour mm -hmm. and run this survey grid, which uh, effectively was scoring the answers of the managers against a scale that we had predefined. Right. So you're really trying to quantify what it means to be well-managed. Exactly. On a scale that is quite simple because, you know, in a one would be that there, there is very little adoption of right. that process and five means... Uh, that there is a full adoption. And these things are quite basic. I call, right. the, I call them housekeeping well, stuff. Give us some examples of what those yeah, things are. Yeah, so for example, you know, one of the uh, questions uh, would have to do with how do you monitor production, right? Mm -hmm. Again, it would be asked in, a, in an open-ended way, give you an example, you know, how that, that, exactly how you just did. Right. 
Um, and companies that were closer to a one in our grid would have very rudimentary ways of monitoring what was actually happening on the shop floor. Right. Or that data would not be visible to people so that it wasn't actionable. Yeah. On a five, you know, an example is a plant manager I spoke with, actually, who had access to the production data continuously, mm-hmm. uh, who could look at this data from his bedroom. I mean, I don't know how happy his wife was yeah. about that. <laughs> That's a different but, story. Uh, you yeah. know, it's this idea of really believing in the data yeah. and making sure everybody had access to it, could right. see it, would visit. Right. Um, and, you know, it ra- editing questions range from stuff like that that is very operational yeah. to things that, for example, have to do with human resources. Uh-huh. Uh, for example, how do you uh, promote people? Uh-huh. That's one of those questions. Right. In certain places, promotions are actually you know, not really related to how good you are. Sure, sure. So you gather all this data on, I think you said, 15,000 firms, 30-plus countries. Yeah. And what are the first kinds of things you observe in terms of just the variation? And then what drives the variation? Well, the first thing you observe is the variation, (laughs) which is, I know it must sound surprising, but think about it. That variation in principle, if things are imitable, should not exist. Right. You know? Yeah. And I think economists didn't believe that that would exist because, yeah. you know, for an economist, if you're badly run, you should be selected out of, out of the market. Right. <laughs> so, right. you know, the, the first thing is, wow, look, these companies can coexist. Yeah. The second piece, which I think is fascinating, is how well these metrics, if you look at the data across countries, how well do they map with the metrics such as, you know, GDP per capita, right. which it's nerdy, I know, but it's very inspiring. Yeah. And the reason is, uh, fundamentally, what this research agenda is suggesting that these basic management practices, yeah. the basic way of doing things, affect firm-level productivity. We tested in the data these strong correlations, but ultimately, they affect country-level productivity. Right. Yeah. And so the reason why I say it's inspiring because because I'm here, you know, teaching this stuff sure. to people who could then potentially have an impact right. that goes even beyond their business. Well, I mean, and if you think about the biggest questions we think about, they're about why GDP per capita variations exist to the degree they do, why TFP or total factor productivity is so different across countries. And, you know, that has always been like some disembodied notion of technology. And it feels like you guys are digging deep into it and actually saying there's a huge chunk of that, which is actually management. Yes, that's exactly right. Yeah. So now that you've kind of uncovered all this variation, how does it map to performance exactly? Like, how do you how do we quantify yeah. that? So the methodology was trying to be as rigorous as possible. So we mapped this survey data with external metrics of performance mm-hmm. that uh, we found from you know there are lots of public accounts, especially in Europe. This data is very rich. Right. So what we know in the data is that better management. Uh, correlates with metrics of productivity, yeah. both labor productivity, total factor productivity, firm growth, yeah. firm survival, even, interestingly, R&D spending, spending right. and patents. So it's a measure that seems to capture something nice happening within right. this firm. I mean, these, these objective measures are then translating into real operational differences and large operational differences. I think if you, I mean, as I recall, you go from the top decile to the bottom decile, you get large changes in profitability, large changes in size. And profitability, of course, yeah, right. of course. The issue I'm having with some of this is that these are survey-based instruments, right? So if I think large firms are going to be higher productivity firms for all kinds of reasons, and we observe that in the data all the time, and if we think that people in these large firms that are successful feel good about what they do, yeah. 
And then there are these small firms that are not that productive and they don't feel like good about what they do because they're losing. Is there a concern that the survey instrument is kind of picking up these subjective ideas of we're kind of not doing that well <laughs> or we're kind of really doing well so that when we grade ourselves – you know, we have a better sense of who we are. Do you, do you know what I'm getting at? Yeah, no, I think, you know, that that is why it was very important to have full control on uh -huh. what the survey actually measured and how the questions were asked. So I think you're hinting to several issues. One is, uh, do we get what's really happening on the ground or do we get their, you know... Exactly. Their impressions. That's why we didn't tell in advance that we were actually scoring the questions. Uh -huh. We were not telling the managers, uh, we are evaluating you. Interesting. Because we were concerned precisely that they would tell us, you know, what we wanted to hear or you yeah. know, things that were actually not very related to what actually was happening. Right. Um, and on the other hand, also the analysts didn't, the people who were running these interviews, they didn't know much about the company. Right. So the, the survey was double blind to minimize right. biases at both ends. And then who scored it? Was it a different person yet who scored it? Or was the person who had the conversation scored Oh my God, they're it? opening, uh, you know, oh, I can, I can well, go on geeky, for hours. No, no, thing, no, yeah. but it's, we, we uh, implemented, uh, I'm very proud of all these basic managerial processes, but you know, we actually did for every survey was monitored, double scored. Yeah. There was another person yeah. listening at the interview at the same time right. so that um, we could have consistency and discussions. And also we wanted to make sure that data was high quality. Yeah, that's what I love about this, actually, because the survey-based research is potentially quite rich, but you have all these issues. And it feels like you guys thought about the real issues in the survey-based design, which was really impressive. And, and I think it's... Uh, you know, we learned as we went along. Sure, we of started course. small. Uh, we ended up scaling. Yeah. Um, and we are at the point now in which the U.S. Census is actually using these questions in That's their own uh, questionnaires with self-reported measures. So I think that there is something to say about learning and improving. Yeah. So let's think about a little couple of the things that once you dig into this, you know, who does management better? in oh, some sense yeah. is an interesting part of this, right? So first thing we know is there's a ton of variation. Second, it leads to actual performance differences. And then who's doing well? And so there are a couple of really interesting things I was hoping to probe you on. One is, uh, coming from a finance perspective, you know, we think about agency problems. Uh -huh. And <laughs> in fact, what do we find? Um, firms with wide public shareholder bases actually are the top performers. Is that right? And in fact, private equity comes in behind them. And then, of course, the worst players are the, are the family players. Yeah. So did that surprise you or how did so, you? So, you know, to clarify, the last ones are not so much the family owned, are the family owned and the family managed. Sorry, exactly right. right. There are important distinction between f uh, ownership and control here. Right. You can be family in the data. What we show is that you, you know, companies that are owned by family but run by professional managers actually do quite well. Right. The problem is in family owned and family CEO firms and which contains also founder CEO and founder owned and founder managed firms, which I agree with you from the perspective of the agency, principal agent, why, right? Yeah. These guys should be super motivated right. and do the best for their firms, And right? the dispersed shareholders should have the biggest problems. Exactly. So what's going on here? I think two things are going on. One is that often family ownership and family controls has a big trade-off in terms of selection. Yeah. So you, for example, you know, as you can hear from my accent, I'm not American. I'm actually Italian, where family CEO, CEO firms go strong, right? Yes, exactly. <laughs> and, um, and the issue is the selection of who is a CEO is based often on who is the first son, right. for example. Sometimes you get lucky. Yeah. But sometimes you are restricting your pool of talent yeah. such that you're not actually capturing the most capable person. Yeah. 
And so here is a problem of, uh, you know, who gets to run the company. Yeah. Uh, perhaps sometimes you give priority to your family bonds relative right. to merit. Well, this I is, think. I think this is so interesting because there's a, there's a folklore about family-owned firms, you know, that, you know, the first generation's okay and then the second generation's a disaster. <laughs> yes. You know, it's like the Woodenbrooks thing. But uh, here you've really quantified that. You've really actually made it evident in the data. Uh, how do you make sense of the publicly dispersed shareholders doing so well? I, you know, I really think that the what we're capturing is investments that these companies have to make. Uh, right. It's, uh, you know, they are under pressures that perhaps companies, private companies, are not. Don't. So, yeah. Right. And also the fact that they can probably attract and compensate managers in a different way. Right. One of the best parts of this research, and there's, you know, there's like 10,000 fascinating results. I'm just going to pick out a couple of them. Is um, one of the titles of your articles is I think it's Americans do it better or do IT do better? Do IT better? Yes. Well, but then you have another piece in the HBR where you know you have three grudging European authors who confess that Americans are really good at management. Oh, right? Yeah. <laughs> so tell us about that. Tell us about how that shows up in the data and, and why you think that might be. Yeah, um, that is a project that you know. Is it strange that I love my projects? No, not I don't at all. Know. That's anyway, so that's, uh, that was actually one of the first chapter of my PhD dissertation, yeah. that what we found in that paper, what, what we argued in that paper, and we could actually quantify it and measure it, is that companies, multinational companies that were American, uh, in the data seemed to get much more in terms of productivity effects from their IT investments. Right. Now, the setting here is that we were at a point in which there was a, a little bit of a mystery in the sense that we, you know, macroeconomists knew that there was going on a lot of, a lot of investments in ICT was going on, was right. happening. Right. However, the productivity returns of these investments had not yet figured really out. Really showed up. Showed up in the day. Exactly. Okay. So once we measured and we, we saw that there was this strong difference between American companies and other companies in, in terms of uh, returns from I, ICT investments, the big question is why? Right? Yeah, and ICT is just information and communication technologies. Yeah, so this yeah. would be, you know, what we measured was quite basic. Now it would be much more advanced, but it's, you know, hardware investments sure. and software investments. Sure. The thesis of that article is that um, in order to see the productivity results of ICT, you need to have complementary investments mm -hmm. uh, in place for those, you know, for these technologies to really deliver on yeah. their promises. It's not enough to plug a computer on the wall, right. just to give you a concrete example, but you need to have a person that has the right skill, the right competences, and can make use of the data. Right. This is, you know, well known in this literature that these complementarities exist. What we think is happening is that by having better management practices, yeah. you can create a better match between the technologies and the people who use these technologies. Yeah. American companies in our data had much more flexible human resource uh, policies. Yeah. They were more proactive in identifying who had the right skills and in moving people around such that the right skill could match the use of the technology. Yeah. And so as a consequence, you would see these strong differences in terms of productivity of information technology. Right. How difficult was it for three European authors to admit that Americans do IT better? <laughs> oh, personally, you know, I think uh, not not very hard, very good. to be honest. Very good, very good. you got to follow the data. <laughs> I'm, I'm American now, so... <laughs> there you go, there you go, there you go. Um, 
So this is, I mean, spectacular, and there's a whole bunch of research. In fact, there's a website you guys now have, the theworldmanagementsurvey.com, yeah. is that right, or .org? Or? Uh, both. Both, but, okay, great. Yeah, and, uh, you know, we put everything there, and it's uh, free disposal in the sense that we put the data as well, anonymized, of course, and we would love for people to use the data, use the methodology, and just, you know, go with it. Yeah. So tell me where you're going now. No. I mean, that, that was a huge <laughs> body of work. I think it was almost a decade's worth of work, spectacular, it has this kind of... The stuff we talked about is just, in some sense, the tip of the iceberg. Tell me what you're getting interested in now. Well, two things. Uh, one is um, very much, again, influenced from my experience here, uh, where, you know, there is a, a strong sense that leadership can have an effect. Yeah. Part of my research is trying to understand where do these differences in management come from and how can we relate it? Can we relate these differences to the specific behavior of CEOs and you know, right. differences in corporate culture? So I have uh, um, you know, an agenda there that measures what CEOs do with their time uh-huh. at scale yeah. using similar methodologies and sort of maps these differences in behavior with differences in performance. And So now you're really going practices. after the CEO level. Is that right? So you're trying to attack time use at the CEO level and see how it translates down That's into right. management practices. Yeah. Can I just ask you about that? It's fa- yeah. I mean, so it seems like what's fascinating in some larger sense is you're taking stuff that would have normally done by ethnographers, like a time <laughs> use survey, right? Oh, yeah, that was done by Mintzberg initially. Exactly, yeah. right? And so, but you're really trying to scale it. So, for example, in the CEO thing, how are you implementing this? How many organizations are we talking about? We are talking about about 1,200 organizations in six countries That's fantastic. right now. Uh, yeah, but that's the concept. I think that there is a lot that economists can learn yeah. from all these other methodologies. Yeah. And uh, to the extent that you can find a way to scale methodologies that have value, right. but still deliver high quality data, why not? Yeah, I no, mean, absolutely. And the second piece is, again, something that I, you know, I'm motivated to do because of, you know, in part of my family history, my dad was a doctor. Mm. Um, my brother, a hospital manager. Mm. And in I, Italy? In Italy, yeah. yeah. In the same, for some, at some point in the same hospital. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, they were fighting all yeah. the time. <laughs> so maybe not. <laughs> right. But, you know, the, 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 the deeper thing there is that um, I do believe that part of the things that we measure for private companies, for example, the adoption of processes, uh-huh. standardization of processes can actually have a value also outside, sure. um, you know, the normal firm, if you like. For example, a hospital yeah. or a school where, you know, if you think about the complexity of production in this uh, sure. type of environments, it sort of makes sense to have some organizing principles that help coordination mm-hmm. across functions or especially in times of urgency. So w- what I noticed when I was, uh, you know, witnessing these discussions is that, however, there is still a poor understanding of what management can really do in yeah. healthcare. Yeah. Um, and often is seen by clinicians as, a, as an imposition on their sure, autonomy. by the evil managers, exactly. There is no, uh, it depends, but there is not a, a good translation. Sure. So that's... And just to be clear, are the managerial processes thought to be the same? You, so there's not a health-specific set of things you're looking at or an education-specific set of things you're looking at. So the idea was to try and use the same ideas because they are so basic. Yeah. 
and see how these ideas would translate across different sectors. Yeah. So we we did is we basically took the processes that we knew had some you know interesting correlation with performance yeah. in manufacturing, and we ported the sem- similar concepts to uh, acute care hospitals. Okay. And interviewed cardiologists, you know, chief managers again, yeah. middle managers in cardiology, orthopedics, and so forth. We did two thousand hospitals so far in nine countries. And, and again, uh, the same basic method same where you have the phone method. surveys and all this kind of stuff. Exactly the same methodology. That is spectacular. And the social returns, obviously, of getting management there right are huge. I, I do believe that there is a huge opportunity there. Yeah. Lots of people, are, I'm not the only one saying it. There is yeah. lots of fabulous research uh, that talks about these things. In the data, we see that the hospitals, again, huge variation, even more than manufacturing. Yeah. In some hospitals, I really think you have to, you know, pray God before you walk in <laughs> because it's those, pretty yeah. bad. It's pretty bad. In others, it's phenomenal. Yeah. But for example, you know, it correlates with mortality rates yeah. of, you know, from heart attacks. Yeah. So I really think there is an opportunity, you know, imagine if this correlation is causal, which we sure. still have to prove, um, you know, there is a strong opportunity there sure. to really have an impact. Yeah. In terms I'm, I was of, just thinking uh, of the medical errors work, which is they're so important, right? Exactly. And this, this would be a clear way you could try to control exactly. it. So I'm, I'm curious if you kind of think back on this kind of decade of work, what are some of the most memorable moments from all these conversations? And what, are oh. the, what is the biggest surprise you think you've, you've taken away from it all? You know, I would say at the time when we were running these management interviews, it was just phenomenal to see how much people wanted to talk about their experiences. <laughs> right. Middle managers, you know, typically yeah. nobody goes after them. And sometimes we had these conversations, conversations that lasted for hours. We had, uh, you know, marriage proposals being made on the phone. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. No, but I think it was really interesting for me to, you know, being exposed to, as an academic, to things that I didn't necessarily, I had not experienced yeah. personally, but still seeing, you know, how much motivation, how much passion these people were putting in their work and yeah. you know, sort of listening to their experiences was yeah. really, I think, something that, um, um, I don't know. But more generally, being part of a team, you know, we were just digging in, a, yeah. in an area that perhaps had not been explored at that right. time. And just being a part of a research team where you were discovering new things. Yeah. Uh, well, I want to ask you about that because you and, and, and Nick and John have had this incredible partnership. Yes, yeah. What's the secret to that? They're great. Yeah, well said, <laughs> well said, yeah. No, that's a, it's really quite remarkable, right? You've done a lot of work together by now. Yeah. And it's been enormously fruitful. That's a really special thing. You know, I think I've been very lucky, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm sure it's more than that. But um, Well, tell us, you, you mentioned your father and your brother. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about how you found your way to economics and to HBS. Oh, yeah. Well, to economics, quite boring. I knew I wanted to do a PhD in economics since I was 12. I oh, think. my gosh. Something like that. <laughs> I know. It's terrible. But that's really, I don't know. I was really fascinated by economic history since. So you were, at that age, you were kind of exposed to it and you were thinking about it? Well, I think through my brother primarily. He's six years older than me yeah. and he's always been, you know, I'm a, I'm a copy of my brother, essentially. Yeah. So yeah. he wanted to, he, he used to talk about economic history. I had some good teachers in high school. Yeah. Got just, you know, the Industrial Revolution. I don't know. These yeah. things always. Where did you grow up? In Rome. In Rome. In Trastevere, in the huh? center of Rome. Actually. Fantastic. 
I, I think also part of the story is uh, my family, you know, they had a firm. They built it twice. Once, um, my mom was from Libya, and then at some point their factory, they had a big factory there. They had to escape Libya, oh and, um, and everything was ruined. And my grandfather rebuilt everything. In Libya or in, in, in Italy? In they Italy. came to Italy as refugees, Fantastic. and they rebuilt everything. So I was actually very close to the world of business, and I, I experienced some of the dynamics of family firms very, you know. Very closely, yeah. Very closely. And then I guess, you know, for, I was lucky to be at a time in which you could look at business problems with large data sets. Yeah. And so on the one hand, very attracted by empirical work, statistics and yeah. large data, right at the time in which that data that started really to off. be right. uh, available. Yeah. You're claiming luck again. <laughs> I don't buy it. Okay, very good. Well, that was fantastic. And I, and I, again, the article in HBR from last year is called Why Do We Undervalue Competent Management? I think it's got a bunch of links in there to all the underlying work. So you can, it's a nice introduction to all of the underlying That's work. That's correct, yes. And as I mentioned to you, Rafaela, when we were talking about doing this, we like to end these with a recommendation. Yes. And so um, it's an after-hours tradition. So tell okay. us about your latest recommendation. It can be anything. Um, what's your recommendation? So I'd like to recommend a book. Uh, which is the biography of Edith Penrose. Uh -huh. For those of you who don't know who she is, she's actually the mother of uh, something called the resource-based view of the firm. And part of the story that she, you know, she lived, she started her career as an economist in the 40s. Yeah. Uh, part of her story was that management and people inside organizations were really a resource that could create growth. And uh, yeah. and I'm just fascinated by the history of this woman who had four kids, yeah. started a field by herself, was managing everything. I don't think she had a nanny. Yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> right. And ended up creating a school of thought. Yeah. At a time in which there weren't many female uh, women economists. Um, today, in my MBA course, which is corporate strategy, I teach her stuff. Yeah. And it's just, you know, finding, reading her life was, uh, that was is really a inspiring. great experience. That is yeah. really inspiring, as, as, as are you. Well, thank you very much, Rafael. That was absolutely spectacular. Um, the work, again, is Why Do We Undervalue Competent Management? It's available on the HBR site, um, and it's really a fantastic pleasure to learn more about your work. Thank you so much. You're growing a business, and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate, no coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Support for the show comes from Brooks Running. I'm so excited because I have been a runner, gosh, my entire adult life. And for as long as I can remember, I have run with Brooks Running Shoes. Now I'm running with a pair of Ghost 16s from Brooks. Incredibly lightweight shoes that have really soft cushioning, 
It feels just right when I'm hitting my running trail that's just out behind my house. You now can take your daily run in the better than ever Go 16. You can visit brooksrunning.com to learn more.